From a human point of view, what does it mean to say God's steadfast love reaches to the heavens? Welcome to The Good Word. I'm Jody Washburn, host and study guide author for this 13-week series on the Book of Psalms. Joining me in conversation are Tiago Aheis and Matilda Fry, both professors in the School of Theology. The title of this lesson was, Your Mercy Reaches Unto the Heavens. And you both have studied the Hebrew Bible, know about various aspects of this this word, chesed, that, that translates as mercy, but also as loving kindness, as we could, we could go on a list maybe of 15 different words that have been used to translate this. I like to translate it as covenant loyalty, um, but it can be translated as love, faithfulness, all kinds of things. But what do you think is meant by this line in the Psalms, that God's steadfast love reaches to the heavens? In the sense that it doesn't have any boundary, any any um, yeah boundaries, any end to it. Mm-hmm. So as far that, like in the entire known yes. I- reality, it's mm-hmm. it fills. Yeah, I mean, you did bring up earlier in the studies, Jody, the idea of the local of God is accessible only within these structured forms of you know experience, the temple, the like. But yeah, I think Matilda pointed to this uncontrollability of this favor, this grace, this reach of God toward the world and humans that is not captured, that is not encapsulated by our religious sensibilities, structures, and it's just there. Um, mm-hmm. So there's something to be said about that, how it's there. I like, Matilda, the like the image that came to mind when you said earlier there there's no boundary. I thought of... Um, and I'm not a scientist, so I may be completely misrepresenting this, but the idea of the heavens as the, you know, the layers of, of atmosphere surrounding the earth, perhaps also what's beyond, right? But in the Hebrew Bible concept, you have this kind of layered understanding and the heavens are above. And Matilda, when you were saying there is no boundary, what I pictured was the the edge of the the atmospheric vapor, right? That the, How exactly do you put a pinpoint mm. on exactly where the atmosphere ends. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a way. But when I picture that boundary, I picture a, such a gradual fading um, that there's no way to put a finger. Mm. And that perhaps the psalmist is is naming that, that there is no way, just despite how much we might want to be able to put a line down and say God's favor is on these people and not on these people. God's loving kindness is for these people and not these people. Um that that boundary is is not something that we can pin down. Yeah. Well, there's something to be said about covenant itself, which is a relation, right? There are blessings. There is a way of, of, of a realization that comes from that experience with God that I think that's where the language in the Bible sort of leads to, that some experience mm-hmm. that and others do not. It's sort of what the gospel does. It brings this clarity of, and that's my point, of that which was always there. Yeah. So I think there's the covenant is God bringing together a relation that is has always been his desire for humanity. And then Paul will say, in him we live and move and have our being. Is that not favor? Is that not a loyalty, a kindness, a grace mm-hmm. that we're just unaware of? And then Paul's whole thing about idolatry is it distracts us from that very ground of being, of you know, that is always there. So, yeah, what can we know? What can we not know? And what are the things that distract us from those realities all around? So, yeah. I've heard a variety of numbers, but but one article um, cited the number 246. This word chesed appears 246 times. Let's just say a lot of times. It's it's a thread that 
is woven throughout the Hebrew Bible and then taken up in many ways in the stories of the New Testament. Um, so when thinking about what is covenant loyalty, mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love, like what what is this? What is chesed? I wonder if there's a certain story from the Bible that for you kind of puts skin on this concept. I always um, you, uh, t- um, take this story in, in my Pentateuch class. We talk about the story of uh, the golden calf. And then Moses um, going back and forth between God and the camp uh, down in the wilderness. And there is a constant, like a um, a dialogue happening where Moses argues, um, please, you have to stick with these people. And God says, I can't. I can't. Mm-hmm. And it stretches and it it is a f- struggle. And so in the middle of that struggle, at some point, uh, Moses has to ask a question, it seems to me, for himself. Because he says, okay, if you can't do this, then I need to know who you are. So show me your glory. And we like that passage in our uh, own ways. But in the story itself, when Moses asks that, God puts him into a cleft of the rock. And the cleft of the rock, if you look at the Hebrew word, is the eye socket in your face. Mm. So Moses is put into something that is called an eye socket in the Rocky Mountains there, right? And he looks out and God passes by and then proclaims chesed, Mm -hmm. loving kindness, mercy, grace, and so on. And And then it says that Moses cannot see his face because he would die, but he can see his back. And I always ask my students, what do you think where God was moving towards when um, Moses was watching his back from that rocky hole? Mm -hmm. Where do you think God is moving towards when you see his back? Away. He's away. But where? God, Moses is up on the in the mountain looking out and and down there are the people and Moses watches God moving away and sees the back of God. So God seems to me and to the students in the classroom when they like feel the story that God is moving to at the camp mm-hmm. to the people because that's where grace is needed most. That's beautiful. So that's my story. Mm. I love that. I remember at Andrews I and we're all sort of graduates from Andrews University Mm -hmm. back in the day. And coming from Brazil, I didn't get a lot of the beautiful theological insights that I got at Andrews at first. So I constantly was blown away by by these ideas. And I remember the first time um, it happened in an Old Testament class with uh, Dr. Richard Davidson, who I'm talking about what happened in Genesis 15 with Abraham splitting these animals, God asking him to do these weird things, and then explaining what it meant to the people then that, you know, the splitting of the animals, the cutting of the covenant was something that was frequently done back then to sort of establish this loyalty between employee and the master, you know, the worker and the and the leader of the tribe, that if anything went wrong, if any mistakes were done, if they broke the covenant, they would be split in half. Mm-hmm. So, And then Richard Davidson in that voice of, you know, that passion that, that he had for the biblical text, explaining how it, God doesn't require Abraham to go through the animals. It's God himself that goes through it. 
sort of expressing something similar to Matilda, that God is the one who moves, who does the action of loving, who starts the movement of care and loving kindness and faithfulness, that whatever is broken in this relation, God will assume the responsibility upon his own body and his own self. So I think that was the first time that that I said, oh, okay, so this is what covenant looks like. This is what is at stake. So this is the beauty of God's radical reach toward the world, that it affects him in, in this deep way and spares Abraham or spares people from the outcome of, of the brokenness of it all. So I guess that story is in the back of my mm-hmm. mind always. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both. There's a there's a what I would like to call an exquisite mutuality in this concept of chesed. I think that my favorite language for it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He writes an essay called Love in Action, and the whole essay explores chesed in the in the Hebrew Bible. Um, but just the idea that we are invited by this God of steadfast love to partner in embodying that faithfulness and, and covenant loyalty in our relationships in every direction. It, there's so much there to unpack. But we have only a few minutes um, left for our conversation. And I think I want to ask, uh, I will come back later to the conversation about Psalm 51 if we have time, but I would really like to ask you about the experience of collective naming of God's chesed and what difference it makes. And this might be a difficult question to imagine in an embodied way, since in our Western world, many of our devotional experiences are connected to, we read, you know, a prayer alone in our room, in our head. We don't even read it aloud, right? And we're not in the presence of other people. But Psalm 136 is one of these poems that is call and response. It really captures this very embodied experience that Matilda referred to earlier in our series about these psalms being designed for use in communal settings. And I wonder if you have any um, thoughts on what is accomplished by that. For instance, what difference does it make if I read phrase after phrase about God's engagement with the people, the long history of deliverance, um, phrase after phrase about God as creator and the source and sustainer of life. And after every phrase, I read, his loving kindness endures forever, his mercy endures forever, his covenant love endures forever. And then what difference does it make if I experience that in a large crowd where the entire crowd comes alive and says together, his covenant love endures forever? What is gained by that collective experience. Do we have any corollaries in our in our modern world? It unites, probably. It unites a, a community of people, and then I could see there is a like an an the the more you say it, the more you repeat it, the emotion and the feeling becomes stronger. It's more emphasized. So in the end, you feel like you are. To Gather with your own, um, with your own people, and you have the same kind of experience in a way. It's kind of like you sing the the, um, the um, anthem or something. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, at the beginning it could be more like you know in a dissonance, uh, but then at the end you have that climax, that culmination, and uh, united voice. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, I, anything anything else? Than- no, I like how you point out both the... Because in a way, what you describe could happen in different ways, but in both experience. That if I read this prayer on my own, I can connect to thousands of years of, of history of mm-hmm. people who have read these same words and have that experience of solidarity. But then there's a different aspect of that experience of solidarity that you're describing, where as we raise our voice together, we actually grow into this unified, we feel almost like we are, we can feel the strength together. Part of that long history. Yeah. All good art, a friend told me once, is a place of encounter. Mm. So I think there's something there that we merge together in this unity and are sort of in fellowship not only with each other but with a long history of people who prayed and counted on those same promises. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you both, Matilda and Tiago. And also thank you to Ben Busby and Rick Basket, our program engineers. And to you, our listeners, thanks for tuning in. For The Good Word, I'm Jody Washburn. You've been listening to Good Word, a production of the School of Theology at Walla Walla University and KGTS-FM. To order a copy of today's broadcast, you can call 509-527-2194. Thanks for listening, and we'll be here next week at this time with Good Word.